Everyone, it's good to be with you this morning. It's been quite a, a season since I've been here. Um, I have not seen any of this before. And so when I walked in this morning, I thought, wow, how beautiful. What a wonderful sanctuary and, and visitor forum back there and entryway and so forth. So a lot of things have changed since I've been here the last time, probably about four or five years ago. And so uh, I praise God for the development of ministry here, things that are happening, uh, your new pastor, I'm getting to know him. Actually, it was part of the qualifying committee, the ministerial candidate committee, that um, took him through the rigors of uh, interviewing and testing and things like that. And he passed. So, you know, good job, Wes. Good job. Yeah. Uh, anyways, it's good to be here with you. And uh, I bring you greetings from Church Extension Ministries. Church Extension Ministries is the mission arm of the Bible Fellowship Church that seeks to reach people with the gospel and plant new Bible Fellowship churches anywhere. We were relegated for years just to be planting churches here in America, but now uh, we have, the, we have the, the leeway to move out into the world and plant churches wherever those doors open and opportunities afford us. We had our first international Bible Fellowship Church come in and be received at conference, I guess it's about, hmm, about, uh, oh, about eight years ago now, eight or nine years ago, and that was the church in Merida, Mexico, under the leadership and the pastorate of uh, Marcos Ramirez. And Marcos is also our Mexican director of church planting. Marcos has uh, one daughter church established now in Via Magna and anticipating another one in Juan Pablo Segunda. These are towns right around Merida there. Um, Marcos is really, really energetic with the understanding of expanding God's kingdom uh, through multiplication. We'll, talk, we'll be talking about that throughout the morning here this morning. But there's a couple other things that Church Extension does that people may not be aware of. Um, and that is, we not only plant new churches, but when a church from outside the Bible Fellowship Church wants to become part of us, we are the ones that take them through the rigors of of uh, qualifying them, testing their compatibility, their agreement with our articles of faith and order. And we go through that compatibility testing until we see that we're a match for them and they're a match for us. A good example of that is a church in Boyertown, Pennsylvania, uh, two years ago, Harvest Fellowship, who heard about us and came to us and said, hey, they were an independent church, why can't we be part of you? Uh, and then I said, uh, well, let's, let's start looking at the compatibility between you and between the Bible Fellowship Church. And so the first thing I, I told them that I look at is, the, is whether or not they're doctrinally compatible with us. And so uh, he said, well, he giggled a little bit. I was wondering why he giggled, giggled a little bit. But he said, well, check us out on our, on our website. So I went to the website, and here they had cut and paste our articles of faith into their doctrinal statement. And so when I got back to him, I said, well, I guess you're compatible. I said, if I find any, pro- any problem with it, then we got worries. <laughs> you know? So yeah, we brought Harvest in last year at annual conference. They were received into the denomination. Right now we're working with two or three possibilities of outside ch- independent churches that want to become accountable and connected. And we're working with those churches right now. The other thing we do, uh, not too much of anymore. We used to do this quite a bit, and that is help a church revive when they're in decline or they're ready to close. 
Uh, we go in and see if we can help them resurrect that work and bring it back to viability. Uh, we were able to do that most recently with, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Long Neck Bible or New Life Bible Fellowship Church in Long Neck, Delaware. And over the past six years, we worked with them. And they, are, they were at one point, I remember going down there some six years ago, and they, were, they had been reduced to about 16 people who weren't even, re, weren't, even, weren't even committed to whether or not they were going to stay. <clears throat> and so they would stay for a while. Uh, we asked them to. We said, well, let's just stay, because there was a, there was a, there was a doctrinal controversy down there. <clears throat> and they weren't understanding what the Bible Fellowship Church believes. Uh, we had to scratch our heads with that because of the fact that there was time spent with teaching the congregation the doctrines. But anyways, I went down there and I spent like six or seven weeks every Sunday going through our articles of faith. And at the end of that time, uh, they said, well, that's what the Bible teaches. We'll stick with you. And so then we were able to get a man to come up here from Florida, Andy Barnes, to be the church planting slash pastor and uh, they were received back, I shouldn't say received back in it, but they were given uh, total uh, recognition at annual conference the other week by being a church that had been revived. From those 16 people, they're now close to 100 people. So praise God for that. Uh, so we do all three of those things, primarily plant new Bible fellowship churches. And if you look in your bulletin, I'd like you to pull out that insert in the bulletin. You'll see all the current church planters. You'll see two that are marked on there for graduation at this year's annual conference. And that's Scott Wright and the work down in Lower Providence near Audubon. And then also Ben Treisman. Uh, now, ben, the ben Treisman and Orchard Hills uh, Mission Church is really a unique story. It's, it shouldn't be unique, but it is in some respects. Why, the reason I say it shouldn't be unique is because it's a daughter church plant. Cedar Crest Bible Fellowship sent out one of their staff members, Ben Treisman, with about 50 people and significant financial funding, and they send them over to the upper McCungie area, Foglesville area, and within a year, that church is now qualified to graduate. They went from those 50 to over 100 financially very well off financially and they'll be coming into the into the denomination uh this coming conference so two churches will be graduating this year and uh, lord willing tim zook planting the church up in forks township pennsylvania will be bringing that church in the following year those are a lot of good things happening we also have a lot of great challenges too and some of the challenges are that uh, a number of our church plants are plateaued, and we want to see them move up above that plateau and keep growing. So you can pray for that. You can also pray for the challenges that our church planters face in their families, uh, with their marriages, and with their children. Uh, Satan seemed to be this year on the attack, and we've had to help a number of our, I should say just two, but we've had to help two of our church planters get some counseling and work on their marriages and work on their families. And so I, I can praise God now that that counseling has really worked out well and we have them moving forward. So pray for these men. These men are your BFC missionaries. They have one target, one charge to plant a new Bible Fellowship Church. And so pray for them. Uh, if you want to 
pick one of those out to pray for. I have the prayer letters, all their prayer letters back there on the table. Pick a prayer letter up and learn more about an individual if uh, God's tickling you about them. Also back there is a clipboard. And each week, Church Extension produces a weekly uh, newsletter called the Antiochian Report. And um, Rachel Schmoyer is now our marketing editor and all kinds of stuff in the office. And she has put together this newsletter really, really well and attractive. So put your name there, email, get it for a few weeks. If you want to cross it off and unsubscribe, feel free to do so. But try it out. I think you'll be blessed by seeing current happenings in church extension. And also I think you'll be blessed by uh, taking on some of the prayer requests that we list each week also. As I said earlier, multiplication, we have been focused, our theme for the last two years has been churches planting churches, reproducing churches. For the past number of years, that hasn't been the case. I want to ask you a question. What kind of of math did you take in school? Now, most of us took an array of math, right? In the elementary years, we took Addition, subtraction, multiplication, and then some of us really got adventurous when we got into secondary and high school and took such things as calculus and trigonometry. Oh, how I regret that. But we took those when we got later. You know, we were disciplined in all the various arrays of math. But for the past 25 years, the church has kind of focused narrowly on one aspect of math. And that is addition, addition, addition. Let's add and add and add to grow very tall and narrow. That's been pretty much of all the the gurus in the past number of years from Donald McGavern on back in the 80s that we want to see church growth. Well, there's nothing wrong with addition growth. Let me just clarify that. There's nothing wrong. And I'm sure you want to see every seat in this Sanctuary filled, right? That's right, okay? So there's nothing wrong with addition growth. But addition growth, biblically, has to lead to multiplication growth. We add in order to reproduce. We add in order to release people to expand and build the kingdom of God. And that seems to be the biblical model. The church is to be adding, but adding in order to send out those who will expand the kingdom. The church is to be reproducing. Well, that introduction is pretty good, isn't it? I don't see any heads nodding. (laughs) But it's catchy, you know. But does it have a biblical foundation? Because everything that comes from this sacred desk should be justified by Scripture. So that's my goal this morning. My premise is that the church should be reproducing, adding in order to multiply. But is that premise justified by Scripture? And I think it is. And we're going to look at a Scripture setting in the Old Testament And we're going to look at one in the New Testament. So I'd like you to turn back to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, the setting for it is right after the flood. The only people left on earth are Noah and his family. And God gives them a great commission. 
Now, that's an interesting title that we give to certain passages of Scripture, usually missiological passages where we call them great commissions. I always kind of stumbled over that a little bit because isn't everything that God directs us to do a great commission? But granted, I'll give, I'll give in a little bit and say that there are missiological great commissions, things that prompt us to take the gospel out and saturate the world with the understanding of Jesus Christ. Well, this is a great commission here in Genesis chapter 9. And God blessed, verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Now look, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth. Fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Now Noah and his sons and his generations did a pretty good job of being fruitful and multiplying. If you turn over to chapter 10, you're going to see all the descendants of Noah listed there in chapter 10. And they did a good job of filling up the earth and procreating and fulfilling the being fruitful and the multiplying. But what about the filling of the earth? In this genealogy, uh, you see all the sons of the Noah and his sons there, the generations listed there. But there's one I want, you to, po- I want, to, one I want to point out here, and that's in verses 8 through 10. One of these individuals who is the great-grandson of Noah. Now Cush became the father of Nimrod. He became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning, take notice, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech, Akkad, Calneh, in the land of Shinar. Now as Pastor said, I grew up in the city of Reading, on the streets of Reading, years ago. And I was a Catholic boy. And I didn't know too many biblical characters. I just knew the ritual I had to go through when I went to Mass and confession. And so, biblical names, yeah, I knew David and I knew Moses and, of course, Jesus. uh, But I didn't know too many other ones. To us, when somebody was called a Nimrod... It was somebody who was a little clumsy. It was somebody who was a little sluggish, you know. So I always thought of Nimrod as this clumsy kid, you know, that couldn't do anything right. But then I got saved, God saved me, and I came to the scriptures and I learned that Nimrod was mighty. And that terminology in the Hebrew really means he was a leader. He was a strong dynamic leader. And you take notice that he led all the people of the earth at this time, and the writer here tells us we should look at it as a kingdom, an earthly kingdom under the leadership of Nimrod. So he leads this people, and you know, in in Jim Boyce, James Boyce, in his commentary on Genesis, when he comes to this passage, he says, He asked this question, almost rhetorically. He says, was Nimrod a good guy or a bad guy? He answers it right away and said, he was a bad guy. And his rationale for Nimrod being a bad guy was because he led the people, he led the people to want a kingdom of their own and not God's kingdom. And he led the people to be an affront to God 
rather than a servant to God. So if you look over in chapter 11 there, we see all the nation of the earth at this time, all the population of the earth under the leadership of Nimrod coming on to east of the plains of Shinar. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, now take notice, three, three times they used this clause. They said to one, one another, come let us, meaning Nimrod leading the people, let us do these things that we're going to see here. Come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used a brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. They said, second time, come let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into the heaven. And let us for, make for ourselves a name, otherwise we will be, in my translation it says, scattered. Some translation it says dispersed. But look at the way they view being scattered. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the whole earth. But wasn't that what they were supposed to be? They were supposed to fill the earth. They were supposed to be scattered, but they were afraid of that. They liked the comfortability of getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, I believe that in Scripture, the Holy Spirit provides for us some divine sarcasm. Now, what I mean by that is uh, every once in a while you see the Scriptures tell us something in contrast to human thought. And he puts it in some kind of a sarcastic way. Three things that these people wanted. They wanted a name for themselves. Their own name. They had a name. They were the people of God. They wanted a city for themselves. They had the promise of a city. They were going to God's city, the eternal city. They wanted a tower to reach up into the heavenlies and produce their own religion and way to God. They had a religion. It was a true religion of God that, given to, that was given to them. But they wanted these things and they say, come let us, come let us, come let us. Now look at verse 7. Here's the divine sarcasm. The Holy Trinity gets together, looks down, and they say, come let us go down. And there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord did what? You can say it. Scattered, dispersed, I don't care which either one you say. So the Lord did what? Scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. You see, I, I think what we see here in these three chapters, we see a commission being given to God's people. God's people getting comfortable under strong leadership. Forgetting about the commission giving them. And God intervenes and says, no, I don't want you to grow tall and narrow with this tall tower into heaven, having a name for yourself. I want you to be the people of God. And I want you to fill the earth with the promise of the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And he scatters them. Well, 
My premise, remember my premise? My premise was God wants his people to multiply, to expand, and to fill the earth with the gospel and not focus on being tall and narrow. Well, you can argue with me, but I think this proves a good point there. The point is God wants his people to move out, disperse with his promises, and share them with people. Well, you might say, Pastor, I'm not your pastor, but you might say brother, okay? That sounds good. That sounds like a good argument to defend your premise. But it was natural here for that to take place. I mean, the earth had to be filled with people, and those people had to spread out, and if they weren't going to do it, God had to do something to get them moving. Okay, granted. So then we come to the New Testament, and it begs a question in line of that. It begs this question. Well, that was okay for them, but is it what the church should be doing? Shouldn't the church in its geographical settings just keep adding and getting bigger so it can have more programs and so it can reach the community with better programs and things like that? Does God really want his church, particularly the local church, does he really want his local church to be scattered, to grow to a point and then send people out and then have to grow to another time and send people out and so forth? Well, let's see if we can prove that from the New Testament. So turn back to Acts chapter 1 with me. Now, here we come across again, passage of Scripture, Jesus' last words before he ascends into heaven regarding the commission, the great commission to them. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both, now take notice, in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, even the uttermost parts of the earth. So there's a dimension here, and I don't want you to get hung up on the geographical dimension here. The idea here is to move out, is to be a witness. Who are we witnesses to? Verbal testimonies to those who don't believe. So missions is not focused on geography, but rather on unbelief. Wherever unbelief exists, their mission exists. But there is this understanding here that the church that's about to be birthed in the next chapter, Acts chapter 2, is supposed to be on the move, is supposed to be scattered from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the world. Now, that starts out really good because the next day the church is established and 3,000 get saved. Then a few weeks or days, whatever that interlude, thousands more get saved. And by the time we get to Acts chapter 7, we have a church in Jerusalem that is our first megachurch. Estimates are that the church was now wasn't housed in a big building but rather in home churches, but they would get together at times. And, and the estimates are that by the end of uh, the, by the time we get to Acts chapter 7, those identified with the church of Jesus Christ or the way at this time, those identified with the way were up, upwards of numbers of 10,000 people in and around Jerusalem. And then God does something. He brings Stephen into the picture. 
Stephen was moving out a little bit, and he was being observed by the Sanhedrin, the leaders of the Jewish community. And the Sanhedrin wanted to call him in and get an understanding of what he was teaching um, and call him on the carpet for teaching such nonsense about someone they had tried, convicted, and executed, Jesus Christ. And so if you turn back to Acts chapter 7, we pick up the end of Stephen's treatise here. He had, uh, for a long time in this chapter, given his defense of the the promise of the Redeemer, the redemption plan of God, the redemptive narrative, as it worked its way through the ages and culminating in Jesus Christ. So in verse 51 of chapter 7, you men who are stiff-necked, do you ever see anybody that's stiff-necked about the gospel? Do you ever run into that? When you're sharing the gospel with somebody or you're talking with them about Jesus and they do one of these, their neck gets stiff, you know? They just kind of back off. I've run into that in some of the most peculiar places. I've run into that when I was in the pastorate more often on somebody's deathbed. You would think that on somebody's deathbed, they would be thinking about in a short time they're going to face God and that they would need a savior and an intermediator to deal with that judgment day. I was this one individual I remember so clearly. Went to visit him in a nursing home because his family had said he didn't have much time. And we had witnessed to him over and over again. And I went to visit with him and stood by his bed and read the scriptures. And he was just lying there, you know, somewhat semi-conscious and stuff. And even in that semi-conscious state, I said, Joe, and that's not his name, but I said, Joe, you're going to face God very shortly. You're going to face judgment you need to be born again. You need to be saved from that judgment. And Jesus Christ is the only one that can do that. Will you right now pray with me and call upon Jesus Christ, repent of your sin and call upon Christ to come into your life? And Joe opened his eyes wide and said, no. Hmm. Stiff-necked. That's what... The word means here. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. Well, imagine just sitting there as an authoritative board, as an authoritative judicial panel, you might say, and the defendant pointing, you in the, pointing, pointing his finger at you and said, you are a bunch of murderers. You are a bunch that doesn't listen to God and his Holy Spirit. You never did. You even killed the prophets who were ready to talk to you about the Redeemer. Well, imagine your response and their response. Verse 54. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. And they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. 
But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. There's a whole lot to unpack there, but we don't have the time. Take notice of chapter 8 now. Saul, who will, uh, Lord will save in chapter 9 here, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church. Take notice of Dr. Luke's wordplay here. A great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. The church was still in Jerusalem. But they were supposed to go where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the world. But Dr. Luke tells us very clearly here, the church is still in Jerusalem. And then they were all, say it with me, scattered. (laughs) They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. It took this great persecution orchestrated by God to get the church moving to where they should have moved. Out of Jerusalem, into Judea, into Samaria. Verse 2, some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women. And of course, our brother read this passage. But I want you to again take notice in verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered, now you're waking up, went about preaching the word. But the bottom line here is verse 8. The bottom line is verse 8. What happens when the church is scattered, preaching the word, sent out? Here, they were sent out by God and the Holy Spirit. What happens? Verse 8, there was much rejoicing in the city. See, the church scattered, proclaiming Jesus Christ, and God's mighty hand moving, saves his people. And there's much rejoicing in seeing the salvation of souls. Do you agree with that? If you want to grow, I pray that you grow by conversion growth. That souls in this target community would be saved through the proclamation of the gospel, through you being released, sent out into your workplace, your schools, your neighborhoods to proclaim Jesus Christ, to dialogue about Jesus and see God's mighty hand move and turn people to the gospel. Well, we pick up this story in chapter 11. Verse 19. There's a couple chapters there that Dr. Luke gives us information about uh, Paul's conversion and then about the salvation, the gospel going to the Gentiles. And then in chapter 11, verse 19, Dr. Luke gets back to the story. So then, those who were... Ah, okay. Those who were scattered because of what? Persecution. They didn't go out on their own, okay? They were scattered because God sent them out to set an example for what he wanted his church to be, a scattered people. 
Because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen, made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to the Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. There was still this bias among the Christians, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. They didn't really know how to get together. But God used that even in reaching the city of Antioch. In verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. And then if you look down, when they send Barnabas up, verse 23, when he, Barnabas, arrived and witnessed the grace of God. I love the way they, Dr. Luke puts that. He didn't, they didn't witness people speaking in tongues or flying off the walls. He witnessed the grace of God because that's what saves. And what does he do? He rejoiced. He rejoiced. Just a sidebar here. Antioch was a pagan, pagan city. It was a beautiful city, very well built by the Romans and so forth. But it was immoral. It was pagan. It was not something where you would have wanted to set up shop. But look at where God sends his people. He scatters them into Antioch, this pagan, immoral city. And just, that, just you know, along with that sidebar, be ready for God to scatter you in the places you may not feel comfortable with. Your workplace, your school, your neighborhood. But God will use you as a scattered person to bring and proclaim the good news there. All right, so my premise. I personally think I proved it from the Old Testament. I personally think I proved it from the New Testament. Does God want his people on the move, scattered, released, to bring the gospel to the entire world, to our Jerusalems, to our Judeas, to our Samarias, to the uttermost parts of the world? I would say yes, Scripture proves that, both for the Old Testament nation of God and for the New Testament church of God. In closing, here's a question. What happens when God's people are scattered and his mighty hand works with their proclamation and sharing of the gospel? Well, I think two major things happen. First of all, sacrifice happens. The church in America is looked at as a consumer-driven type entity, not as a sacrificial entity. Our whole Christian faith is based on sacrifice. Jesus counted equality with God not something to fight about and to hold close and tight, but he emptied himself to the point of becoming a man, even a bond slave, unto death, even death on a most humiliating cross. Jesus laid the platform for the Christian faith. It's based on sacrifice. Paul, Paul goes on in Romans chapters 15 through 17, talks about this theme of one anothering, giving ourselves up for one another. That's what we're about. And so when the church, no matter what size, when the church builds into its philosophy of ministry that we're going to give ourselves up for the kingdom of God, and we're going to look at a community around us, look at a people group around us, and we're going to reach that community or reach that people group and sends its people out to do so, that portrays the church as being sacrificial. Hey, look at that. They're growing, they got people and so forth, and yet they're giving those people up? 
The world scratched its head at that because bigness is big. The second thing is transformational. When God's people are scattered, proclaiming the good news, God's hand moves, people get saved, it transforms communities. This city of Antioch, Antioch became the missionary base for the Apostle Paul. When he came back from his missions, he went to Antioch and spoke with the elders there and reported to the elders. By the time of the second or third century, the Antioch community of Christians there had become so academic in the understanding of God's word, they they produced what was called the Antiochene New Testament. Today, when in biblical circles and even non-biblical circles, in non-biblical archaeological circles, when Antioch is mentioned, it's not thought of as the pagan Roman city, but rather it's thought of as the center for biblical archaeology in the Middle East. Sacrifice, transformational, that's what happens when God's people are scattered and the church is willing to give itself up for the furtherance of the kingdom of God. I don't need, you don't need to turn to it. We're going to close with this. But I chose a few sections of Scripture here where we emphasize the word scattered. Okay? There's a passage in Zechariah. God is condemning Israel for their idolatry and for their intermarriage and for their disobedience. And he's bringing judgment on them, the promise of their captivity into foreign nations. But even in that promise that he gives, or even in that judgment that he gives, just like back in Genesis 11, even in judgment, God has a purpose for his people. And in Zechariah 10.9, it says this, When I scatter them among the peoples, they will remember me in far countries. How's that remembrance going to take place? Well, like in like Meshach, Shadrach, Abednego, Daniel, they will remain faithful to the worship of God in those far countries. They will be a testimony there. John Calvin makes this comment. He said, God uses a curse here in Zechariah in an opposite meaning. As though he had said that he would, at his pleasure, turn darkness into light. In other words, turn this captivity into light, the light of the gospel. The people had been scattered through God being angry with them. But that issue of this sowing would be joyful. For the Jews would dwell everywhere and be God's seed. And thus be made to produce abundant fruit. That's what being scattered means, being, being God's seed thrown out. That's the Old Testament illustration of the word scattered. God digging into his seed bag and throwing his seed out so that it brings the good news to the world. You and I are seeds. He wants to scatter us. And as a matter of fact, we are scattered already. You're scattered into your neighborhood. You're scattered into your workplace. You're scattered into your schools. He wants you to be fruitful there by being an open witness of Jesus Christ and building the church. Father in heaven, thank you for your word that challenges us greatly, Lord, these commissions that you've given to your people and to the church, these commissions that tell us to be 
witnesses and testimonies on the move, scattered for the sake of the building of the kingdom. Forgive us, Lord, when like Jerusalem, when like the people on the plains of Shinar, we're getting very comfortable by just being together. Forgive us, Lord, for sometimes that mentality. I pray that you'll help this church to grow, to add people, but with a bottom line philosophy of sending those people out, adding in order to multiply. So bless this church as it continues to grow and develop under the leadership of Pastor Wesley and bless him and his family as they continue to adjust here and bring your vision for the church here through their ministry. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Make sure there wasn't a step there.